welcome to the OT Digest podcast. I'm your host, Katie Kasparo, the founder of otgraphically.com, where I synthesize research into visually appealing graphics. On this podcast, we take research and make it more fun and interesting in order to quickly hear the most updated evidence all around the world. I interview authors, share research tips, and provide practical examples that I hope you can use and incorporate into your interventions the very next day. Thanks for listening. Well, hello, everybody. Welcome to the OT Digest podcast. My name is Katie Kasparo. Um, and today I'm really excited. We have Rafi Salazar here with us uh, to talk a little bit about all the things he's been working on and um, which is a lot. <laughs> Thanks. Uh, he has a podcast called The Better Outcome Show. He also is the principal owner of Rehab U Practice Solutions. Um, he is a licensed OT based in Georgia and has worked in a variety of settings. Um, and more recently, he's the author of Better Outcomes, A Guide to Humanizing Healthcare, which is a book uh, which is super, super relevant and important. So I'm excited to hear more about that. Rafi, uh, would you like to introduce yourself more or explain a little bit more about, you know, what you're doing and, and what you're excited about? Sure. Yeah. Thanks for having me on. Um, well, my name's Rafi. I'm an OT by trade. And um, I like to say that OT found me in the, in kind of in the right spot in my life. I didn't really know what I was going to do when I grew up, <laughs> ended up falling on a bottle out in the river when I was at a fishing trip the summer before my senior year in high school that landed me in an OT clinic and a hand specialty clinic uh, three times a week for the balance of the summer before my senior year in high school. And then, you know, I, I liked it so much. I stuck around and volunteered and decided that's that's what I wanted to do. So um, became an occupational therapist. And from there, I've kind of been all over, done some consulting, done some teaching at the university. And then now I also own a, a PTOT practice here in Augusta, Georgia, and then I work with with private practice owners on all kinds of stuff. <laughs> yeah, that's awesome. I I think that's a great story of how you got started in OT. Um, I could see that happening. <laughs> so yeah, I feel like hand therapy too. You get to really like you get to chat and talk a lot with OT. So it's probably like an interesting experience to really get to know the profession in a unique way. And be on the other side. Someone yeah, said this exactly. the other day, the other side of the bedpan, which I had never yeah. heard that phrase <laughs> before, but different, different perspectives. So, um, well, your mission of, I think though, your most, all of your organizations and all the things you're doing right now is to make healthcare human again. Um, so where did you come up with that kind of where, I mean, I, I have an idea, but you know, what was the motivation behind that? Yeah, I think the the biggest motivation for me was, so I graduated and ended up, I did a short stint doing some contracting at a nursing, at a couple nursing homes, and then landed at the VA. And that's really where the bulk of my clinical career came from. And part of um, being an, an employee of the federal government uh, is they give you a lot of training opportunities, which was great. And one of the training opportunities that I was in, it was called, I think it was like leaders in action or something, but we ended up having to do projects to improve the quality of care being delivered at the organization. So 
in that time and just working for the federal government in general, which is just a big bureaucratic healthcare system, you have a bunch of people who are making decisions about the way care is being delivered that aren't necessarily boots on the ground individuals, which means they're not seeing the effects of, of their decisions. So, <clears throat> excuse me, going through this training, we ended up having to, to make some changes or propose some projects to improve the efficiency of, I was in outpatient for the outpatient clinics. And what I began to see was that, like I said, there are a bunch of people in the C-suite of a lot of hospitals and healthcare organizations that sit around and they look at graphs and they look at charts and they look at spreadsheets and they're making decisions in order to make column B work out, right? So, okay, we're going to cut appointment times. We're going to cut this cost or cut this expense or add this um, process or, or workflow in place. And it's going to make all of these numbers improve over here after they, after you, they want run through the formula. Right. And because I was not in the C-suite all the time, I mean, I was going in to, to do these meetings, but then I was going back to the clinic and I was seeing the effects of those changes, right? Those, those decisions that were being made to processes of care and stuff like that. And really what I began to notice was that much of healthcare, especially when you get in the big healthcare organizations, is really a numbers game. Now, I understand you need to make profitability work out and the numbers do need to, to work out in order to keep the lights on and keep seeing people. But there was so much of a focus on kind of this abstracted view of healthcare where we're, we're taking like a lean six sigma approach or like a project management approach to healthcare. And what we end up doing is we lose the really the important or the valuable piece of healthcare, which is the human interaction. It's one person skilled in the art of healing, helping another person on their own unique road to recovery. And if you put too many processes or systems in place, you end up removing that so much where it really is just kind of a big conveyor belt. So seeing that at the VA was really where it started for me. I was like, okay, we need to, we need to find a way to, to get the efficiency. Yeah. But to not lose that human contact, the human element of healthcare, which is so important. Yeah, that's huge. I feel like that's, it feels like um, trying to fit a square peg into a round hole, like just kind exactly. of going into the everyday. Um, and I can see, I wonder if the VA is kind of like, the, I always, I, I work in outpatient, but primarily have um, pediatrics and uh, it's similar in the insurance company world too. Um, and oh, thinking yeah. about that system too, and how that dictates so much. And uh, what you were saying made me think of of that as well, just those big organizations and just people disconnected. Uh, one of my jobs, you know, one of the businesses as entrepreneurs, we just always have like 17 other ideas, but was to, you know, really give presentations to um, so somebody can take this cause I don't have time for it, but give presentations <laughs> to insurance companies be like, this is the person you just did this decision. And this is what happened just to kind of bring that back. Um, because I think if they were to learn those stories, it would be, they would make different decisions, but yeah, I think that's a huge issue and I'm really glad you're tackling it. I'm sure it's been quite a, a mountain to address. Oh yeah. You're doing your little wins. Little wins is what you look for. <laughs> Yeah, absolutely. So how did I, on this podcast, we try to kind of focus on the research side of things. Um, so how did research play a role in your book? Like kind of what were you pulling from or, you know, when you were doing your your book um, research, what, what resources did you pull yeah. from? Well, the book is kind of a culmination of a, a few years of work. So when I was, it started when I was at the VA and dealing a lot with veterans with chronic pain, 
And luckily um, for me, I was in a position where the VA was in the middle of trying to create an interdisciplinary pain management program. And I happened, again, because I was in some of these trainings and, and leadership programs, was able to get in kind of on the ground floor and really began looking at taking a biopsychosocial approach to healthcare and chronic pain management and all of that, which kind of takes, it is chapter one of the book is all about taking a biopsychosocial approach as opposed to like a biophysical or biomedical model. Um, so that's kind of like the biggest area of research that I explore throughout the book. So it, the whole book kind of builds on itself, but if you're going to take a biopsychosocial approach or approach that says, we're going to look at the individual more than what's going on in their, their physiological symptoms, but we're going to look at their, basically what OTs do, right? Like we look at their context, we look at their background, we look at their environment, we look at the, the place where they're, they're going to be completing their occupations, their meaningful roles, all of that kind of stuff. If you take that approach, um, they're just by necessity or just logical progression. It means there's some things that are going to happen, right? So the first kind of springboard was, okay, we're taking this biopsychosocial approach or this holistic approach. And then from there, it's like, okay, well, that means we need to build trust and build a therapeutic alliance or an intentional relationship. There's many different you know, terms for that, but building a real relationship um, in the book, I call it a meaningful relationship with your clients and your patients. Um, and again, you do that and then you get into the process of care and how do we put people ahead of policies and procedures and Com communication is very big. How do we prioritize making and empowering the client and the patient to take really to step in the driver's seat of their own health care instead of being this passive recipient of services that, again, the research shows is not really effective in the long run. So a lot of the research kind of springboarded from this idea of taking a holistic approach, but then it kind of, we took little rabbit holes here and there, just the logical progression of what does it mean to actually take a holistic view because it's one thing to say we take a holistic approach to treating patients and then it's another thing to say okay because we take a holistic approach to patients that means we this is how we deliver treatment these are the types of treatments we think are most effective or the research shows are most effective so that's what we're going to do this is how we communicate it to our clients and our patients this is how we prioritize them showing up and putting the process of care in place so that they actually are more engaged when they get here all of that kind of stuff flows from this idea of I always say it's it's being OTs at the end of the day, right? Like this this biopsychosocial approach got a lot of um, has gotten a lot of airtime recently in the world of chronic pain management and physical therapy and all of that kind of stuff. And when you read the principles of the biopsychosocial approach, it's like, well, that's OT right there. <laughs> you know, like we look at people within their context and their meaningful roles. So, yeah, the number of times I say this is like why the environment matters in my day yeah. just throughout my in my personal relationships is is pretty impressive but yeah like it, it's so um amazing that you know there is you really have to kind of frame it in a different way for other people to kind of get on board but that's a conversation for another day yeah. um so i what i kind of picture I'm very visual as you probably know but i picture is you're kind of flipping the lens of like where you start your view versus, you know, how are we going to make money, which is, you know, I, I'm sure you have that lens also as like an entrepreneur that is, has to be kind of in, in, in there somewhere and flipping it and saying like, how can we make the patient more engaged and how can we make, um, care better? And then, but at what point do you still have to 
you know, really think about the profit? Do you have to kind of fit that into what the system is already, you know, supporting? So I guess my question is like, how do we advocate for this with this current system kind of trying to fit it in? Yeah, I think it doesn't need to be, you know, when I first started doing this kind of work, I was like, man, we're going to change, we're going to totally change healthcare. We're going to start a revolution. And the reality is like, there are, there are big things that are at play that are outside of the scope of even large multi-million dollar health systems to change. So the reality is you're probably not changing a lot of a lot of that, right? The, the system that in which you're getting reimbursed isn't going to change. Um, the method that you're going to be using to bill, the people that are going to be paying you ultimately won't change unless you happen to be some of these people that have like just opted out and gone cash pay only. And even then there's some problems there, which we can, might be able to talk about later. But um, what I advocate for is doing what's called a, or taking a, a bottom-up approach instead of a top-down approach. So we still need to get demographic information. We still need to bill insurance appropriately. We still need to document all of that kind of get authorization, verify benefits, all that stuff needs to happen. Um, because if not, we don't get paid and we go out of business and then we're looking for a job, right? <laughs> right. Um, but the way in which we do it can be either very uh, organization focused or very person focused. So Normally what happens, the big, the the easy example here and what I use all the time <clears throat> is think about the last time a, a client or a patient or a prospective client or patient called a clinic or your clinic, like what happens during that interaction? Well, probably what happens is, you know, the admin picks up the phone and says, hey, you know, ABC physical therapy or ABC occupational therapy, how can I help you? And the person says, <clears throat> do you take my insurance or I have a script for OT and the admin goes, okay, well, let me get all this information. What's your date of birth? You know, what's the diagnosis? Who's the physician? You know, what's your phone number, email address? Let me get all this information, all this demographic information. And then if there's time, then they'll say, well, tell me a little bit about what's going on, right? Um, by simply taking that entire interaction and just flipping it it's on, its, on its head and doing what we call a, a bottom-up approach where we focus on the individual, and we get their narrative experience. So all of the clients that I work with at Rehab U, even the staff here at Proactive Rehab and Wellness, we have like a framework that we use to handle these calls. And the first step in the framework is, tell me about what's going on. Like, let's get your narrative experience. And then from there, there's just a natural progression. Okay, so this is affecting your daily life this way. What, you know, what would you like to be able to do? What would you like occupational therapy or physical therapy? to be able to get you to achieve, right? What are the goals that you have for treatment? Have you tried treatment before? What are your expectations around what treatment might look like? And you get all this information. And only after you get all of that, really the important stuff, then you say, okay, well, you know, it makes sense to schedule you. Let me get all this boring stuff out of the way so that we can actually get you on the books. You know, what's your date of birth? What's the doctor? What's the insurance information? And I'll even tell, you know, when I handle clients or calls like this at the, at the clinic, sometimes when my admin is out, I'll even say something like this, like, okay, I got the, all the important stuff. Let's get all this boring junk out of the way now. Okay. Like after I know what's going on with you, let's get the boring stuff out of the way. You know, give me that information for your insurance company or how you're going to pay and all that kind of stuff. But it's only after we get the narrative experience and how this issue or this problem that the client is calling with, how that's impacting their life. And only after we get that information, do we move on to the admin stuff. So you're not doing anything really different. It's not like you're 
um, you're billing insurance in a different way, or you're onboarding patients in a completely different way, you're just changing the order in which the information is communicated and received and presented. And what you're doing through that process by just changing the order is you're taking what can be a very cold, very uh, business-like or transactional experience, and you're making it more of a, of a human experience because you've given the patient or the client the opportunity to be heard and listened to. And that in and of itself doesn't really happen a lot of times in healthcare. So that's really an easy way, just taking just taking the interaction and flipping it on its head. So what we're doing is focused on the individual and then getting what we need after the fact, after what's important to them has been covered, right? Yeah, I think that's a great practical example of how, what that looks like for sure. And um, yeah, we don't have to throw everything away it's, and we don't have to reinvent, you know, to our own healthcare system, yeah, exactly. you know, would be, would probably not work anyways, but yeah, that's, that is, um, feels more implementable for sure. Yeah, exactly. Yeah. It's always about little things you can change. Mm -hmm. You know, you start making a few little changes here and there, and then you just kind of see what is working or what clients have, have said they really like. So we take mm -hmm. stock of what, what patients and clients say when they come into the clinic, we use the care survey or the care measure, um, on their way out. And it's a really a, a measure about the subjective experience of, of a healthcare interaction. And in that questionnaire, there are things like, you know, the, the client or the, the organization or the clinician allowed me to, um, to tell my story. They really listened to me. They were, uh, you know, they individualized my care, whatever it was. And you can track and see, okay, like we made this change and now, objectively, we can measure that clients are having a better subjective experience because of the the changes we implemented. And then you keep it, you know, um, and you just kind of small little iterations as you keep on moving until you get to a, a point where you really are delivering a, an entirely different experience to the client, as opposed to what they're getting in, in basically every other healthcare clinic they're walking into. Yeah. And I'm sure the benefits of that are will eventually lead to profit in some way too. You know, I, oh, I'm yeah. curious about that, but <clears throat> not that again, not that that's the goal, but you know, better reviews, better people, you know, com word of mouth referrals. I could, yeah, I don't know. I'm absolutely. sure that there's, there's so many valuable things, you know, in addition, uh, and most importantly that the patient feels heard, but that, you know, there's a business value to that too. Because I, I guess I, what I think is like, sometimes we have to talk the talk of administration too. you know, they're going to ask for these things, you know, if we are not necessarily the business owner, but the OT, you know, trying to think of how to, how to frame it. That's kind of where my mind always goes, but yeah, absolutely. And the reality is like, there are real significant business metrics to get affected by something like this. So as an example, clinic that I run here, proactive rehab and wellness um, one of the big metrics that we track is uh, clinic retention. So there's there's course of care retention, which is how many patients or clients started a plan of care and completed that plan of care. We track that. That's a pretty big metric. But then the other one is uh, clinic retention, which is how many of those clients come back to you again for something else. Maybe they saw you for an ankle problem six months ago, and now they're here for their shoulder. And we've got, we're sitting right at around like a 74, 75% clinic retention rate. And that, you know, I don't have like, I can't really ask them all that, but we try to ask as many as, as come in and they all say, well, because when we came here the first time, you know, we could tell you really cared about us in the way that you did X, Y, Z, right? 
and we take note of that and we make sure that we don't axe those processes from, from what we're doing. But the difference between making a real intentional relationship with the clients that walk into your clinic and not is light and is, is night and day difference. So we have a couple big chains. I will not name them here in the city that I work in or that, that the clinic is located in. And I can't tell you how many clients walk into our doors that will tell us something along the lines of, oh, I went to XYZ physical therapy and they were doing the same thing as everybody else. Or I was doing the same exercises as, as a guy next to me. I didn't really get a lot of personal attention or whatever it was. They were doubling, triple booking, whatever it was. And I didn't like it. So I'm going to give y'all a try. Well, I and mean, then that's like a huge opportunity when somebody walks in and says that, because then it means, okay, I make a real meaningful relationship with you, or I can develop trust with you. And then I show you that I care. And then I'm actually going to implement things in the treatment or in our interaction that shows that I care. And that is a patient for life. And they're going to tell their neighbors, their friends, their cousins, their you know lawn man, whatever it is, everybody they talk to about whatever you do, occupational physical therapy, they're going to say, oh, go to these guys because I went to somewhere else first and then I landed at their doorstep and they're amazing. Yeah. So it looks like when I was going through the book that covers eight commitments that clinicians and organizations can do, um, the one that you were kind of talking about just there and a little earlier is put people ahead of policies. Um, yeah, yeah. I could see that clearly as well as, um, the one that I'm curious about, if you have an example, is forget time. This is number seven. Sorry, I should probably say it. Um, number oh, yeah. seven says forget time-based productivity commitment. That one was that <clears throat> one stood out to me. Do you have what? what's like one little bite-sized snippet of what that looks like? Sure. Yeah. So um, we live in a world, uh, in the, at least in the United States, speaking of folks in the U.S. here, where the bulk of payers are reimbursing on a fee-for-service model, which means that you're getting paid for the amount of units that you bill or the time that you spend with the patient. So one of the pitfalls, I guess, of this method of reimbursing clinicians is that the incentives on the organization side or the, the clinic side is that we want to track and we want to make it efficient. We want it to be profitable. That's baseline. Yes. But what ends up happening is you get an over-reliance on this idea of productivity above all else. So where the only way, and I mentioned this in the book, that there are many organizations that the only time clinicians are told they're doing a good job or they're not doing a good job is based solely off this productivity number. It might be utilization. It might be um, the first job I had was like, okay, you had 480 available minutes in a day and 90% of them or 95% of them had to be spent on direct patient care. And the only time I got any kind of feedback from my supervisor was when either I went above it or I fell below it. <laughs> um, and there was no real way for clinicians to show the value that they are providing or even delineate that they were providing a higher quality of service than their peers because everybody's measured on this number, this productivity number, whether it be a percentage or a utilization amount or, or whatever it happens to be. So what I advocate for, what I help my clients do, and what we do at the organization here is we try to focus, obviously we need to be, we need to hold some kind of productivity standard so that we can keep the lights on, right? There, We need to be able to make enough money that we can keep the lights on and keep seeing patients. However, that is not the only metric by which clinicians are 
judged on or uh, assessed on, if you would. So I had mentioned the, the care measure earlier. It's called the care survey, which is um, it's something about compassion and, and rating for empathy in the healthcare system. But you can go to care. I think it's called cares.org. And it's it was developed by an organization out of New Zealand, I think. Um, but it's free to download and all that. And there are metrics. And what I like about it is a validated assessment. And it has benchmarks for each uh, area. So there's like a benchmarks for physicians, benchmarks for nurses, and benchmarks for um, both the organization and individual providers for allied health. And one of the things that we use to rate clinicians is um, their scores on the CARES measure. So how are you making clients feeling heard, listened to, you're individualizing your care, they feel like what you're providing is valuable. And we're using that one is a way to improve care and standardize care across the organization, but then we're also using it to evaluate individual therapists. And we can say, listen, um, you know, Susie Smith or, or whoever it is that we're, we're talking to, um, we've noticed that, you know, in this one area in the care measure, um, you're scoring below the benchmark, which means that, I mean, you're not doing anything evil or wrong, but it, it's an area for improvement. And maybe it's um, clients feel like you're not giving them enough time to feel heard and valued, right? So how can we incorporate this into your daily or your routine in the clinic so that you're giving patients and clients that space so that you can do that, right? Um, and it's just another way of evaluating therapists because again, from like a leadership level and an organizational structure level, what gets measured gets improved. And if the only thing you're measuring and the only thing therapists or clinicians are hearing from you is that we need to be productive, we need to bill so many units per patient, we need X, Y, Z, whatever you call, whatever the metric is for productivity, then that's all you're going to get. And the other stuff, the important stuff, the stuff that brings patients back to the clinic, the stuff that uh, keeps clients engaged in their plan of care or returning again for another problem or referring friends and family gets left behind because the only thing they're focused on is the productivity. I've got to be productive. I have to you know, meet this benchmark or whatever. So you need to give from a leadership level, you need to give your staff and your client, your, your clinicians, another thing to be focused on. And that other thing should be something that is that puts the client and the patient at the center of the organization, which is why we use the care measure as, as one example. But um, that's kind of the big thing is what you're measuring and then communicating that to your staff. So obviously, again, you need you need to make the numbers work financially, but that doesn't need to be the only thing you're evaluating your clinicians on. It doesn't need to be it certainly can't be the only thing you're focusing on from a from an organizational standpoint. Yeah, you can't do 480 minutes of non-evidence-based practice. Yeah, exactly. <laughs> that's sure. where my head goes. Yeah. <laughs> like you could be, and no one cares, and that's not good at all. So exactly. yeah, I, I think that's a great, great example. Thank you for going through that. I really appreciate it. Well, awesome. Yes, this has been so helpful to see kind of what what's included in your book and what kind of some of the practical examples are, which I think are so needed versus kind of that overarching framework and um, kind of all... Um, just more vague. It seems like you really bring it to, to a practical level. So I really appreciate it. Um, Rafi, can you tell us a little bit more about where to find your book or, you know, if, is it already out? Yes, it is available. Uh, the publisher is telling me to send people to Amazon. So go to Amazon and search for uh, Better Outcomes, a Guide to Humanizing Healthcare. There's a Kindle version and a, a paperback version. And then 
there's talk of doing an audible version come 2023. So we will see. <laughs> I think I, you have a good uh, audible voice. So I feel like that would be a good, <laughs> to list. I, I'm assuming you would be the one to, to record yes, it. Yes. Yeah. Oh. I would, I would definitely narrate it myself. <laughs> yeah. That would be great. Yeah. That's a, that can be a big, you know, turn off if you're listening yeah, to an audio book. It doesn't work. <laughs> I, I've got, I got a book on audible one time and I can't remember the guy's name that was, that wrote the book. And I was expecting to hear this man come on and talk about this topic and it was like, it sounded like a high school girl. And I was like, oh, this is not the person that I'm, that I'm reading <laughs> who from. I visualized. Yes, exactly. <laughs> well, thank you so much. I really appreciate it, Rafi. And you're doing some great work. And we all as um, occupational therapists and all healthcare professionals appreciate what you're doing and think it's going to make a big, big impact. Oh, thank you. All right. Well, thank you for listening, everyone. Um, until next time, we'll see you on the OT Digest podcast. <laughs>